You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. If you have a Bible with you, if you'll make your way to the Gospel according to Luke, we'll be in chapter 1 this morning, and in a moment I want to read verses 57 through 80. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are in a sermon series entitled From the Manger to the Throne. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and today we are in Luke 1, 57 through 80 is our text. I want to invite you now to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, His mouth was opened, and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He had swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, may serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Many literature lovers and scholars alike would agree with the following statement that I came across regarding the protagonist in the classic book, Les Miserables. If you know of this book, you are familiar with the protagonist, Jean Valjean. And here's what one person said of him. He is a timeless character. One of the most complex and compelling in all of literature. If you're familiar with this story, either because you read the book, which is really big, or you've seen the movie, I wonder if you would say the same, that Jean Valjean is a timeless character, one of the most complex yet compelling in all of literature. Les Miserables is a fictitious story written by Victor Hugo about the life of this man named Jean Valjean. In this story, Valjean was an ex-con seeking to reform himself and to live a new and better life once he got out of prison. And the turning point for Jean Valjean's life takes place very early on in the story. If you remember, after being released from prison, he is destitute and hungry, but he is shown kindness by a local bishop named Charles Muriel who is later called Monsignor Muriel. The bishop opens up his home to Valjean for the night. But instead of receiving this act of kindness with gratitude, Valjean chooses to take advantage of this man by stealing several expensive silver plates and then fleeing into the night. Jean Valjean does not get far before he is caught by the local authorities. And he, once they catch him, they search the bags and they discover these stolen silver plates. And he is forcefully taken back to the house of Monsignor Muriel where he is confronted. In that dramatic moment, Jean Valjean's future hangs in the balance. If he is convicted of theft for a second time, he will go back to prison for life. And what happens next in this story is beautiful and breathtaking. Upon seeing Valjean in custody, Monsignor Morel exclaims, Ah, there you are. I'm glad to see you. Why, I gave you the candlesticks too. They are also silver. And they will fetch you up to 200 francs. Why didn't you take them with the rest of the plates? And then he hands him these expensive, costly, silver candlesticks. What the bishop did in that moment, not only caught the police off guard, but it left Valjean speechless. See, Monior Morel gave this thief 
This thief who took advantage of his kindness, he gave him the most precious and priceless gift anyone could receive. He gave him the gift of mercy. That single display of mercy, it changed the trajectory of Jean Valjean's life forever because that's what mercy does. It changes people. I really do believe that when we, when we see mercy on display, whether in a great work of literature like Les Miserables, or we see mercy on display in real life, I believe we get to behold one of the most awe-inspiring scenes in all the world. <laughs> you can have great mountain peaks. You can go to the depths of the ocean. But you want to see one of the most beautiful sights in all the world. One of the most awe-inspiring scenes in all of the world. Watch when mercy is on display. There is not a greater sight. And in today's scripture passage, listen church, we get to behold mercy on display. But guess what? This story is not just any story about mercy. This story is the greatest display of mercy the world has ever known. And the best part, it's not fiction. So now, I want us to look at this passage together. The title of my message is The Splendor of tender mercy. And that comes from Psalm or from verse 78 which we will come back to shortly that says this because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This morning we get to see the splendor of tender mercy. Our passage actually can be divided into two parts. In verses 57 through 66, we see mercy demonstrated. And in verses 67 through 80, mercy declared. So let's begin by going back to verses 57 through 66 and seeing mercy demonstrated. What Luke shares with us in these verses, verses 57 through 66, about the birth of Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, and the details surrounding the naming of their son, which would be called John, these verses connect us back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Think of today as a continuation of that story. Now, if you weren't here that week, I wish we had time to review and rehearse all of the details, but I do want to read some passages here that will help us connect that week's story and those verses with this morning, because I believe we are supposed to do that if we're to understand what's being said in this passage. Let's go back to chapter 1 and verses 5 through 7. Here's how Luke sets up the story. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced 
in years. And what happens is Zechariah on this day, he is chosen to go into the temple at the time of prayer and to be an intercessor on behalf of God's people. And while he's there, the angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him, your prayers have been answered. God has heard your prayer. Your inability to have a child, God is going to make a way. You are going to bear a son and you shall call his name. Or your wife's going to bear a son and you shall call his name John. And then... In verses 13 and 14, he tells them this. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now go to verses 57 and 58, our text for today. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. See, few details are actually given about the actual birth of John. But what we need to know is that God's word to Zechariah and Elizabeth was fulfilled. We're told that in verse 57, she bore a son. Do you remember what Gabriel said? Your wife will bear a son. She has now bore a son. Check. (laughs) Fulfilled. And he says, at his birth, people will rejoice. Verse 58, people are rejoicing at his birth. Check. Now here's a question. Why are they... Why are they rejoicing at his birth? At this point, they do not know who John is. They do not know the role he will play. So why would there be joy among the community in which they live? And Luke gives us the answer in verse 58. They heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Why were the people rejoicing that day? As they heard about the birth of this boy to Zechariah and Elizabeth, because if you recall verse one or verse seven of chapter one, they were unable, physically impossible for them to have a child, and yet God gave them this child. And Luke says that everybody was rejoicing in the great mercy that the Lord had shown her. And what I love about that word, great, that word in the Greek means to magnify. God is magnifying His mercy through this woman to His people. See, the birth of John was the mercy of God on full display, not only to this woman, but to His people. You see, by giving Elizabeth this son, God was demonstrating his mercy to her and to his people. Now, the extent of this mercy would not be realized until Zechariah opens his mouth. Little did they know that day what mercy they had received. They were just excited for Elizabeth. 
Little did they know what mercy they had received at the birth of John. And little did they know what mercy awaited them in the days ahead. It's actually worth noting. If we look back to last week in Mary's song, in verse 46, we're told that she magnified the Lord. She made much of Him. And one of the things she made much of, we see in her song in verse 50 and 54, is the mercy of God. Listen to Mary's song. She's magnifying God. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Listen, church, it's imperative that we see the mercy of God on full display in the details of this passage. Mercy is dripping from every single sentence. How so? How should we see mercy in this? We'll go now to verse 59. Let's catch ourselves up with the story. We now move from the birth of John to the eighth day after his birth, and his family and friends have gathered together because his parents wanting to obey the customs of the Jewish people according to the law of God, they are having him circumcised. And in that culture, there were often witnesses to that event. They, they gathered that day to consecrate this child before God. You can think of it as a modern day christening. This is a big deal. Everyone is gathered. It's the eighth day after he's born. And at this point, Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth had not named their son yet, which was not common in that day, and we're not told why they waited. And the custom of that day was to name a son after his male relative, either his grandfather or his father. And this is why in verse 59, those who were present, both family and friends, they, they wanted to name him Zechariah. I mean, that just makes since, but to everyone's surprise, Elizabeth states, no, his name is John. Look at verses 60 and 61. No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. By naming her son John, Both Elizabeth and Zechariah appear to be breaking from the customs of that day. And if you remember, because Zechariah was mute and unable to speak, Elizabeth speaks on behalf of both of them. And that's why, after she states, my son's name will be John, those present, they all look to Zechariah. Like, are you on board with, with this? They look to him to see if he affirms this decision. Verses 62 and 63. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. At this point, everyone present was baffled. But what happened next, friends, it would make headline news all over the region of Judea. Look at verse 64. And 
immediately. His mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. At that moment, after Zechariah declared that his son's name was John, look, look at this, God immediately and miraculously demonstrates his mercy to this man and towards his people. He's showing him mercy. And he is going to declare mercy to his people. How so? How is this an act of mercy? Let's go back to a few weeks ago when we looked at this story and look at verses 18 through 20. I told you what happened that day in the temple. This angel appears, tells him he's going to bear a son. And listen to Zechariah's response in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, he's not just simply asking a, how's that going to happen kind of question. It's basically saying, prove it. I need a sign. How in the world could that be? This is unbelief. And we know that. Because of the response of the angel. Verses 19 through 20. And the angel answered him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you. And bring you this good news. And behold. You will be silent and unable to speak. Until the day that these take place, things take place. Because you did not believe my words. Which will be fulfilled. In their time. Now. A few weeks ago, when I had the privilege of preaching on this text, I, I made a case that Zechariah was made mute as a consequence of his unbelief. However, his inability to talk during this whole time of Elizabeth's pregnancy, though it was a sign of his, or it was the consequence of Zechariah's unbelief. This was also a sign of mercy. It's not one or the other, it's both. This was not only a consequence of his unbelief, a sign of his mercy. And I gave two reasons we should see this as a sign of God's mercy. I, I want to restate just one of them because we see it here in this morning's text coming up again. See, Zechariah was not made mute by the Lord simply as an expression of mercy to him. No, his inabilities to speak was a sign of mercy to the people of Judea and beyond. Because Zechariah was mute after the temple visitation, and because he remained mute until, and during the entire time of Elizabeth's pregnancy. What did this do? It created a sense of suspense among his neighbors. What in the world is going on? What is God doing? Why has God done this to Zechariah? Something is happening. And if you're wondering why Zechariah was not able to speak at the birth of his son, but actually eight days later when the public is there, look back at verses 65 and 66. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them 
laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? I wonder, had Zechariah that day, had God not caused him to be mute, I wondered if he would have walked out of the temple and would have said to everyone standing out there, Hey guys, guess what happened? <laughs> Woo, you're never going to believe this. God visited me in there. And my wife, you know, we, we can't have children. Well, that's changed. We're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. He is going to come as a prophet like Elijah. And he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Don't you think that would have been a little hard for people to believe? But in that moment, when all of a sudden, after months of Zechariah not being able to talk, and at the birth of his son, his tongue is loosed, and he can now proclaim, what do the people say? What's with this child? Zechariah doesn't have to convince anybody. Now everybody knows, okay, this isn't just a normal pregnancy. Think Sarah. Think Rachel. God is doing something great because of this event. Now everyone would know the tender mercy of God on display to this man through the birth of John is what we're told in verse 66. Because he was able to speak after being unable to speak, now everybody, everybody will know the mercy of God is on display. Now before we move on to the next half of our text, I think there are two lessons about mercy we can take away from these verses. I was moved a number of times this week as I considered these two truths because I think they are often neglected. Here's the first one. Sometimes God's mercy comes in the form of fatherly discipline. Just like it did with Zechariah. You want to say, okay, so was God disciplining him or showing him mercy both? You see, sometimes in order for the Lord to reach us and to teach us and to grow us, he must strip things from us and at times he must even afflict us to mature us. And when he does that, it's mercy. Doesn't feel like mercy, but it's mercy. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him, reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we've respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they are earthly fathers. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. So here's a question in light of that passage. Do you view God's discipline in your life as a sign of mercy and a means of his love? When God strips things from you in order to teach you and to reach you and to mature you, when he afflicts you, do you find yourself tempted towards anger because God has taken from you something and yet he's done it for your own good? When God disciplines you, do you find yourself tempted towards anger because God has humbled you by allowing you to experience the fruit of your own sinful choices. Can you relate to this this morning? Friends, if I just described you and your experience, can I just remind you of this? God is being merciful to you. Sometimes God's love means he has to remove and take away and strip us of things and even afflict us to get our attention. And he does it out of mercy. But that's not all. There's one more expression of mercy present in this story that that we can learn from. It will do our hearts good not to miss this. Because of the tender mercy of God, we can be certain that God will continue to use us even when we fail. Isn't that good news? Isn't that Zachariah's story? Because of the tender mercy of God, we can be certain that God will continue to use us even when we fail. Oh, what Mercy is on display in the life of Zechariah. Get this, connect this story with the last story. The last time Zechariah opened up his mouth in verse 18, he spoke words of unbelief. The next time he opens up his mouth, Luke tells us he speaks blessing. That's mercy. God didn't sideline this saint because he messed up royally. He still gets to be a part of God's plan. Zechariah had initially failed to trust the word of God. And was told, when he was told that he would have a son and he would name him John. However, on on this occasion, Zechariah was given a second chance. 
He was given a second chance as an act of obedience to God. Notice what he does. He declares his name is John. And it is no coincidence, not at his birth, at that moment, God opens up his mouth. Last time he closed his mouth as an act of disobedience. Now, out of obedience, God opens up his mouth. And guess what? At that point, God used Zechariah to break the 400 years of silence to prophesy about John and Jesus. Those 400 years of silence we talked about and as we looked at this text a few weeks ago, 400 years, there's been no prophet, there's been no new revelation. And not only was John, his son, coming, opening up his mouth to the people, Zechariah, this man who was disobedient for months, was unable to talk. When he gets to open up his mouth again, God says, I'm going to use you to speak of my tender mercy. Oh, how kind of the Lord. I really believe that. That word was for some this morning. That you needed to hear the Lord. He may discipline you out of his mercy. And out of his mercy, he still is going to use you for his glory. Don't grow weary and don't give up. Now, Looking back at verses 65 through 66, we see how God was using Zechariah to proclaim mercy to his people, and that's exactly what he does. Zechariah is now going to open up his mouth and declare mercy. That brings us now to verses 67 through 80. Mercy declared. Look at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and now he's going to open up his mouth. Now let's connect verses 60, 67 with what just happened. Remember, Zechariah's mouth is opened. He is now able to speak. And because of that, everybody's saying, what child is this? And Zechariah says, let, let me tell you <laughs> what child this is. And notice how he prophesies once again. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's spiritually empowered to prophesy and to praise God. And that's what he does. This, this prophecy of his can be broken up really into two parts. So I want to begin by reading 68 through 75 one more time. It's what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In verses 68 through 75, Zechariah begins this prophecy by expressing God's mercy toward Israel. If you recall, God in the Old Testament made a promise, a very particular promise to his people. It's known as the Davidic Covenant. God made a number of covenants with his people, but he made a covenant with 
David. And in essence, God promised David that one of his king, that one of his descendants would be a king, and not only a king, but he would be the deliverer of his people. And that this man whom God would raise up, he would rescue, redeem, and save his people. So God had made a promise to David. From your line, one of your descendants, I'm going to send the king my people need. He's going to be their deliverer. He's going to rescue them. He's going to redeem them. And he's going to save them. That's why it's so important. Back in verses 32 and 33, that the angel proclaims to Mary who her son will be. For he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This coming Messiah was going to fulfill this promise. But little did the children of Israel know that God would fulfill this promise to David. By sending the Son of God Himself to take on flesh in order to redeem His people. For years and years and years, as they thought about this promise, as they waited for this promise, they had no idea what God had in store when He made this promise. When He spoke it to David, God never expected any man just to fulfill it. Back then, He knew, oh, if you only knew what this descendant of David is going to be. I am going to send my very son and he is going to take on flesh and he is going to fulfill this promise. And that's exactly what God was doing. He sent his son. Look look at this word that's so important for us to catch in verse 68 and 78. The word visited. Verses 60, verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. God was going to visit his people. How so? That little baby in Mary's womb was the son of God who is going to fulfill all of the promises of God. You see, that baby in Mary's womb was God in the flesh, visiting His people. And why? This was an expression of God's mercy. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. According to Zechariah, why did God make this promise to His people? Why did He make this promise to David? Why did He send prophets who would proclaim this promise? Why did He remind His people of this coming Messiah? He tells us in verse 72, why did He do all this? As an expression of mercy. If you are remotely familiar with the story of Israel, As it is revealed and told in the Old Testament, you know that the people of God were a mess. That's important for us to remember. God did not make them His own because they were righteous and obedient. Quite the opposite. 
See, what we discover in the pages of the Old Testament is that time and time and time and time again, his people failed in epic ways. They failed. They worshiped other gods, even though God had clearly made himself known to them. Even though he made them his people and brought them out of Egypt. Even though he revealed himself to them through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Even though he dwelt in their midst, in the tabernacle, in the temple, they continued to disobey. See, his people, like the rest of the mankind, were so enslaved to sin and selfishness and idolatry, they would never, on their own, they would never, ever, ever be able to experience peace with God peace within, or peace with others, unless God acted on their behalf. And that's exactly what God did. He acts on behalf of His people. Listen, to show mercy to someone isn't just to have pity for them, it's to act on their behalf. And that's what God is doing here. God was acting on their behalf Because he knew that his people were helpless and they could not rescue or redeem themselves. See, the need of God's people was so great and their condition was so dire that God himself had to do for them what they could have have never done for themselves. Listen, this is the good news we celebrate at this time of the year. This is what we celebrate every year during this Christmas season. Here is what we have been celebrating these last few weeks, and we will continue to celebrate in in the next few weeks. God took on flesh in order to save sinners like you and me. And He offers us salvation through Jesus Christ who took our place on the cross. Jesus received our punishment so that we, That we could be called holy and righteous. And so that we could know true peace with God. But there's one more thing that Zechariah proclaims in verses 76 through 79. We don't want to miss. Now he turns and says something about this child. Whom his wife has given birth to. This child boy named John. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, God's mercy was on full display, not only in sending Jesus into the world, His mercy was on display and was shining brightly through the witness of John. What we take away from Zechariah's prophecy, if you take the first half, God has accomplished salvation out of His mercy. And the second half, God announces salvation as an expression of His mercy. 
God accomplishes salvation out of His mercy, and God announces salvation as an expression of His mercy. See, God sent John to go before Jesus so that everyone would know the tender mercy of God. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of God. I love that word tender here. In the Greek, here's what it means. It means your innards. God is merciful. To the core. He is merciful. To the core. And he is displaying his mercy to his people. Not only by accomplishing salvation. But announcing salvation. That's that's an expression of his mercy. And friends when we get to behold God's mercy on display. In all of its splendor. A splendor that shines like the rising of the sun. When we get to see that, it's when we watch people who were trapped in darkness, who live in the shadow of death, when they themselves get to see the light of salvation and they are rescued. There is not a greater display of mercy than that. The tender mercy of God is on full display as we behold the Son of God who came to save us and to change us forever. So how can we apply this part of the passage to our lives? It's a close. I just want to give you two quick things. Here's the first one. We must receive mercy from God. How do we apply this passage? We must receive mercy from God. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon called the prince of preachers a great evangelist. He preached from Luke chapter 1 verse 78. And this is what he said at one point in his message. The proclamation of the gospel in a nation or to any individual is a visit of God's mercy. Whenever you come and hear the gospel, be sure of this. Whether you receive it or not, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Even if you stop your ears and will have none of it, yet God has visited you in tender mercy. And that by the gospel, He tells you that there is a way of salvation and there is a plan for the remission of sin. And then he says, it is a monstrosity. What if I say a miracle of iniquity that men having sinned and God having done so much to work out a way of remission of those sins, men choose to refuse to accept God's pardoning love. Men sin not only against God, but against their own interests when they turn aside from the wooings of disinterested goodness and refuse salvation through Him who loved us even to death. That which God has so tenderly and heartily given us in the gift of His dear Son to die for us, it ought to be received with eagerness. And then He says this, will you not receive it? Will you not receive it? My dear hearers, you shall not go out from this place this morning without knowing that God in His tender mercy has visited you and has blessed you by the mere fact that you have heard the good tidings of free grace. Jesus seeks you. Seek Him.
Friends, I join in with my brother Charles Spurgeon and say if you are here this morning and you have heard the message of the mercy, the tender mercy of God, don't you realize it is a tender mercy that you are here hearing it? Don't take advantage of the mercy of God. God hasn't just made a way for you to be saved. He has given you the ability to hear this morning. He's not just a God who accomplishes mercy. He's a God who announces it. And it's been proclaimed this morning. The question is, will you receive it? Lastly, how can we apply this passage to our lives? We must model mercy to others. In the same way that John was not the light, but he reflected the light to others. Friends, we must do the same. If Jesus reveals the mercy of God to the world, then we must reflect the mercy of God to others. So here's a question for you. Are you merciful? Is that how somebody would describe you or me? See, if Jesus reveals the mercy of God to the world, and we're called to reflect it, then why aren't we? In the Gospel of Luke, we're going to discover, as we make our way through this book, we're going to discover this simple but often forgotten truth. Disciples of Jesus are meant to follow in the footsteps of the Master. God is filled with tender mercy. Are we filled with tender mercy? Does mercy characterize our families, our marriages, the way we relate to others, the way we relate to the lost world? If not, Advent isn't just a time for warm fuzzies. Advent is a time for us to say, there is the tender mercy of God on display for me and for the world. Church, may we hear God's word as he has spoken to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these precious reminders about your mercy. May you write these truths on our hearts for the glory of your great name. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.